Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm Eric Lures. And I'm John Fusco. It's September 6th, 2018, and on this week's show, movies, movies, movies. Oscar contenders out of Telluride, our most anticipated of TIFF, and the fall releases, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's show from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School. We're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. Now, we're going to spend the bulk of this show talking about the super exciting movies of the fall, but I want to celebrate that last gasp of summer by saying that I finally went to see this summer's biggest surprise hit of the U.S. box office, which was Crazy Rich Asians. Never heard of it. (laughs) It's kind of like Mandy. That's next week. That opens next week. Oh, my God. Oh, God, I can't wait. Sorry. You're on the edge of your seats. Uh, So this past weekend, Crazy Rich Asians, not Mandy, became the most successful studio romantic comedy at the box office in nine years. And by the way, it was the first studio movie to feature a mostly Asian cast since the Joy Luck Club 25 years ago. I was shocked when I read that. Uh, I'm mentioning it because it continues the trend that we've talked about a few times on this show that many of you might find encouraging which is that despite conventional wisdom, diversity indeed sells on the big screen. And by the way, it was a pretty fun watch. So, I know you were all on the edges of your seats waiting to hear which films Telluride programmed. And well, honestly, the lineup held almost no surprises, although it was really pretty incredible and seems deserving of its Oscar-predicting reputation. There were some big names that cinephiles have been anticipating for months and seem to be generating the most buzz post-festival, including two previous Best Director Oscar winners, Damien Chazelle with First Man and Alfonso Cuaron with Roma. Also, Yorgos Lanthimos is the favorite, which IndieWire is calling his most accessible, expensive, rollicking, and wicked film to date. All of these films played at Venice last week, too. There were a few world premieres at Telluride. My new boss, Robert Redford, stars in what is reportedly his final on-screen role in David Lowry's The Old Man and the Gun. Interestingly, Fox Searchlight seems to be having a bit of a moment. They actually had the largest presence of any distributor at Telluride this year with the Redford film plus Yorgos Lanthimos' film and the world premiere of Can You Ever Forgive Me from Marielle Heller, who you might remember from Diary of a Teenage Girl. Did you work with her on Diary of a Teenage Girl at IFP? No, actually. I, I, you know what's sad? I actually still have not seen that film either. It's which time. Which I feel really bad about. It's the um, moment. Because Belle Pauly is an up-and-coming actress and... I just saw her in the trailer for uh, White Boy Rick the other day. Oh, that was another one that of these Matthew festivals. That Matthew McConaughey Detroit one. Yeah, yeah. so I, unfortunately I haven't, but I, I do want to see that film and this one coming up. Well, of course, there were some festival favorites from earlier this year, notably Hirokazu Koreada's Shoplifters, which won the Palme d'Or at Cannes and has already been entered as Japan's official submission for this year's Oscars, so we already know there's Oscar stuff happening. One thing to note and to look forward to in this upcoming year of movie going is a ton of docs about film, filmmaking, and the film industry. Both Venice and Telluride screened Orson Welles' final film, which had apparently gone unfinished for decades. And if you're curious about how this happened, they also screened Morgan Neville's documentary about the making of called You'll Love Me When I'm Dead. There's also Hal, Amy Scott's doc about director Hal Ashby that I'll talk about later in the show, and what she said a bio-doc of notoriously ruthless New Yorker film critic Pauline Kael, and Pamela Green's Be Natural, the untold story of Alice Guy Blanche about the first female movie director. So it'll be a great year for movie lovers who love movies about movies. 
Now, the Venice Film Festival actually runs until this Saturday, and as of recording, the awards hadn't been announced yet. But even more importantly, our writer Andrew Lappin is actually on the ground for the second half of the festival doing some coverage, including a masterclass with David Cronenberg, so we'll fill you in a little more next week. Now, Eric, I had asked you to look into kind of the bottom line and acquisitions from these fests, and it turns out... Yeah, I wasn't really seeing a lot of acquisitions being taking place at these festivals. It seems to be really, you know, revving up, as you mentioned, for award season. So a lot of the distributors kind of come in tow with the films. Uh, And so it was a little bit light on on that front. The coolest thing, apparently, that I heard is that for Roma, uh, Netflix actually now has a new, at least for this film, a new opening logo scroll thing. So it's not that, you know, Netflix thing. Oh, wow, they're debuting a new one? This is a black and white one, probably for Roma specifically, well, which, only for Roma. which shows that it's a very serious movie. Uh, <laughs> you know, and that's, I thought that was kind of interesting that they're definitely positioning this film in a very different way than their other uh, films of the year. But in terms of acquisitions, it's been very quiet. And just trying to keep up with Venice, Toronto, Telluride, NYFF, it's been like very fast flying um, so far. Very fast. I'm going to uh, talk about Roma a little bit. Uh, in the next segment, but I will say it's interesting, I think, for for our listeners to note that, you know, what you said, that these are not really acquisitions festivals. Like, if you're thinking of premiering or you'd love to premiere at Venice or one of these, um, it's probably not, you know, as likely to happen if you don't already have your distribution deals in place. So it makes sense to sort of target other major festivals like TIFF that we're going to talk about today, where you know, not all the films have been picked up yet and totally. where acquisitions do happen. Especially for Telluride where the screenings are secret before the actual reveal that weekend of. It would be tough for smaller indie films, I guess, if they don't announce until you're actually at the festival. You know, it'd be a little bit more of a difficult strategy to premiere at Telluride. Yeah, for sure. That. So let's get into TIFF a little bit now uh, because in what's been a whirlwind of a week here at No Film School, we also have confirmed our plans to head up north to the great country of Canada for the Toronto International Film Festival. Um, this happened about five days ago, and it's on Friday, so I've just been kind of trying to piece together as much as I can in a week. <laughs> I just want to remind you that marijuana becomes legal next month in Canada. <sighs> so that's in October. I, mean, I don't care. <laughs> okay, all right. Just putting it on the record that it's next month, not September. Eric, I'm a CBD enthusiast. Okay, you're right. Well, a marijuana then, then enthusiast. By all, by all means. Okay, well, anyways, it's just going to be me up there this year um, after we missed last year. And I'm going to be loading up on a ton of great interview podcasts that you'll be able to hear throughout the fall to sort of build up our fall program. Um, and it's going to be a good one. <laughs> So far, I have talks lined up with John Luke Godard cinematographer Fabrice Arango, Joe Walker, the editor of Steve McQueen's latest film, Widows, as well as all of his other movies, and as well as Arrival, Sicario, and Blade Runner 2049. So he does, like, most of Denis Villeneuve's movies. This guy is clearly one of the best in the business. That is so cool. Yeah, I'm excited, for sure. Um and Eric and I were talking a little bit about this, but the way we approach these fe- like the festival coverage is, um, you know, we like to have a lot of below the line people on the show, and they don't normally get a chance to really do press because everyone's you know more interested in Ryan Gosling and Blade Runner two thousand forty nine or uh, um, I don't know, I mean Stephen or the director obviously yeah. uh, from Widows, but. You know, we uh, we love to hear about specific aspects of the filmmaking process and to get like someone like Joe Walker on the show 
uh, is really awesome, and it's, uh, it's going to yeah. be a, a, a good conversation. It's for cool sure. when you when you get their name and then you hop on their IMDb page, right. and you're like, oh wow, they did this, 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 and this. I wouldn't have known that until you know we scheduled this out. So that's a really cool opportunity. But yeah, and I think the other thing that that is exciting for us and for our listeners is that because of what you said, because they don't get interviewed as often, their answers are a lot fresher. They have like a lot more to share, and they're usually very like giving with information. They're not sort of over it like some of the directors can be. But we are going to be interviewing a few directors, including the legendary English director Mike Lee, who is here with his latest film, Peterloo. Director Felix Van Groeggenen, who is premiering his first English language film, the Steve Carell, Timothy Shamalama Ding Dong starring <laughs> Beautiful Boy, which has been getting a lot of buzz. Uh, Academy Award-winning director Laszlo Niemes, who stunned the world with his sobering film Son of Saul back in 2015. And I'm sure there's going to be many more joining as the week unfolds. So it's a really uh, exciting list of guests to sit down with. Um, a little nerve-wracking. Some Amazing. big names there. I think that's one of our highest-profile lineups yet. I'm so impressed that you put it together so quickly. Yeah, me. I was very surprised. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, wait, do you know what this is for? Okay, all right, as long as you know. Hey, yeah. it goes to show, you know, uh-huh. this podcast, we've, we've done a good job uh, building the rep, man. So, as I said, it's been a few years since we last spoke about TIFF, uh, so here's a quick refresher about what the festival actually is. It's spread out all over downtown Toronto and is easily one of the biggest film festivals in the world. At this point in the year, it features premieres and screenings of many films that are destined for award season, as we were talking about earlier. It's not really an acquisition festival, um, much like New York Film Festival or Telluride or Venice. Um, It's interesting to see how the festival season kind of sways that way. In the beginning, it's a lot of, uh, you know, like people trying to get seen, and it seems like studios really hold on to their gems until the end. So this year, there are 342 total films, including 254 features and 88 shorts. 232 of those features are world, international, or North American premieres. So that's, like, a lot of premieres. Uh, I think I think eight, it's around, let's do math. It's like 110. Yeah, wow, look at that. That's 110. Per uh, country. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of countries, there's 83 countries that are represented Um, There were a total of 7,926 total submissions to the festival. 36% of the films are directed by women, which is, I think, a good number. Better than most of the others. That's, uh, you know, close to a third of the movies that are being going to... Actually, more than a third. Yeah, yeah, yeah. more than a third of the movies. Math. Uh, (laughs) There are 30,055 minutes of film, which are equal to more than 20 days of viewing. Dang. The the longest film is 14 (laughs) hours long. Uh, I'm not going to see that one. You're not covering oh that one? Oh, my God. Uh, you only well, get 15-minute interview what slot am I gonna do? for the 14-hour yeah. movie. I have a lot of stuff to do. I can't just be sitting in a theater for 14 hours watching a movie called The Flower. Anyways, the sh- that's the <laughs> longest. It's called La Fleur or The Flower, and the shortest is only 43 seconds, and I might see that one. This is called <laughs> The Invisible Cinema 3. There are 3,000 enthusiastic festival volunteers that make the festival run, and they're only outnumbered by the 3,100 pounds of popcorn kernel <laughs> that are prepared at the Tiff Bell Lightbox, which is kind of the festival hub during the festival. Also hmm. nice to see that they actually prepare popcorn from kernels, unlike in our theaters where they're all like already stale in big plastic bags. It features an incredibly diverse program uh, every year, but this year has some massive movie screening, including Damien Chazelle's First Man, 
the premiere of David Gordon Green's updated Halloween, the premiere of Steve McQueen's Widows. I think the premiere of Barry Jenkins' If Beale Street Could Talk. I don't think that's playing. Uh, yeah, it hasn't so. played anywhere else yet. It didn't play no. in Venice? No, uh, I, so. I haven't seen any trade oh. reviews. This might be the world premiere. Oh, wow. Alfonso Cuaron's Roma, Jonah Hill's Mid-90s, which is also a premiere, uh, Michael Moore's Fahrenheit 11.9, I think, which is also a premiere, uh, Karen Kusama's Destroyer, which is also a premiere, Gaspar Noe's Climax, and Shane Black's The Predator, which is also a premiere, which <laughs> I have. That's wow. what I used to call Gaspar Noe, so it's amazing. <laughs> No. <laughs> Isn't it Gaspar so, Noe? I don't, I, don't, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm talking no about No way. Someone. Maybe I'm talking about someone else. You never know. I have a ticket to The Predator. So. <laughs> for TIFF? Or, yeah, for uh, TIFF. Oh, wow. <laughs> and it's opening later that weekend. I don't think I'm going to be able to use a lot of the tickets that I got. So if you're in Toronto. Tweet at him. Tweet at me. And uh, maybe you'll be the lucky winner of a single ticket to The Predator at Scotiabank. Maybe you'll get John Fusco as your Predator. <laughs> <laughs> Just meet him on the corner of a street outside the light box, and he's going to have a bag <laughs> of tickets, whichever you pick. So all these movies being said, I thought I'd ask you two uh, what movies that you're looking forward to seeing out of TIFF, because even though you won't be attending and I will be going, but you guys won't be. Yeah, we got it. <laughs> how, can we, how, how can we live vicariously through you for this experience? A ton of these will be like hitting theaters very soon, so um, you'll get a chance to see him. Even a lot of them are going to be at New York Film Festival, yeah. uh, like the week after or two weeks after. So I'm just going to start off because I've been talking. Um, and honestly, this may not come to the surprise of anyone, but a younger, naive John Fusco, uh, who when he first heard of this project all the way back in the spring, was unfairly dismissive. And I'm talking about Damien Chazelle's Portrait of Neil Armstrong, First Man. I think La La Land did some unfair things to my psyche. I even liked the movie. It just got to a point where all the awards it was winning became this like really obnoxious thing and how but how could I forget about Whiplash? That's anyways. When I went to go see Mission Impossible 6 on the IMAX, you thought I was done talking about Mission Impossible. <laughs> nope. Never. They played about 8 minutes of this movie before because it's also going to be screening on IMAX and it was absolutely phenomenal. The feel of these eight minutes were super dark and gritty. The cinematography was amazing. The sound design was, like, unbelievable. And word out of Venice is that the rest of the film is just as good. And it's also sparking up a little bit of political controversy, which is nice to hear from a man whose last film was all sing-song and flim-flam dancey time. Ooh, I like that. You like that? Wow. Hashtag flim-flam dancey time. Nice to see that this one is actually set in a city of stars. (laughs) Yeah, there we go. Thank you. That was awesome. Uh, um, my pick with a subject who has been in the news quite a lot lately is Earl Morris's American Dharma, which is a documentary that sits down with uh, Trump's former good buddy and Breitbart News co-founder, the, I think this is almost universally agreed upon, atrocious Steve Bannon. Uh, Bannon was in the news recently after being announced as the headliner for the fall's New Yorker Festival, which is a series of conversations with the most influential people currently having career years. And once that decision became public, other celebrities participating in the festival, including Jim Carrey and Judd Apatow, announced that they were dropping out. And once they announced that, the New Yorker Festival decided to drop Steve Bannon instead. 
So to say he's a controversial figure would be an understatement. Uh, the man, as we're recording this, uh, he showed up incognito to the Venice premiere of the film. I don't know what he was wearing or if he had a mask <laughs> on or something. Uh, and Errol Morris has recently had to make statements to the press justifying his decision to make a movie about this guy, saying, Disturbing things are happening in the U.S. and the world, and it is important for us, certainly the people in America and probably the people throughout the world, to understand better what's going on. To ignore it would be a big mistake, a very big mistake. So if there's anyone who can make a compelling doc about Trump's former chief strategist, it's probably Errol Morris. And even though the subject matter could be a little gross to some, uh, it's also going to be playing the New York Film Festival. So I'm anticipating it to see where the story goes. Wow, we Good for Errol Morris for stepping in the muck with that one. Yeah. That, uh, that screening is like, it's sold out. Yeah. The first screening sold out at um, TIFF and... I was trying to get an interview for it, but they're busy, obviously. Yeah. So it's definitely uh, got people who want to see it. I want to see it for sure. Yeah, he's definitely the, like the the one with uh, Donald Rumsfeld a couple of years ago. There was the fog of war. Like he's dealt with some controversial political figures getting the spotlight in the past, and I think this one is just so timely that it's really freaking people out a little bit. And the fact that he's participating in Q and A's, I guess, after the movies, uh, maybe, uh, maybe not. I don't know. But if Steve Bannon is actually like in attendance, I wonder if they're like bringing him onto the stage. Was he like in a instrumental part of the film? Like, was is he actually like featured in yeah, the, like his daily a, life? Is it, like Errol Morris followed well, him around? Or? Well, I know like he's definitely part of that Interatron interview process. So I'm not sure if it's it's not really like a biopic, I believe, of his life. But there are one-on-one sit-down interviews with him that are exclusive to the film, that and good. so he is kind of yeah, leading it. These other Errol, recent Errol Morris films are are basically just. In a long interview with the person, yeah, with you know a little bit of other stuff cut in. So I imagine it's that same. It's that same style thing. that he has, yeah. Well, we talked about my pick a little bit already, and even though we've been joking about it recently on the show, the more I read about it, the more excited I got about Alfonso Cuarón's Roma. And it's not just because I stayed in the exact neighborhood of Roma that the film is about a couple weeks ago when I was in Mexico City. I love Cuarón so much, and one of my favorite films of his, which I've also talked about on the show, and actually one of my favorite films overall, is E Tu Mama Tambien. Now, that's a film where he returned to his native Mexico after some Hollywood success, and now, about 15 years later, he's done the same thing. But this time, he got even artier and more personal. He shot the film himself when his go-to guy Chivo was unavailable, and on an Ari Alexa 65 in super-wide 65mm. It's black and white, Spanish language, basically the opposite of mainstream. And yet, it's a Netflix film, which makes it all the more interesting to me. Uh, Eric alluded to this a little bit earlier about their release strategy. So the movie follows a year in the life of a middle-class family and their live-in housekeeper, modeled after Cuarón's own, in Mexico City in the early 70s when there was a violent student uprising in their neighborhood of Roma. So this 65mm film with Dolby Atmos sound obviously must be seen in a theater. And apparently Netflix is experimenting with a theatrical rollout plan in indie cinemas and making a heavy Oscars push. So I just can't wait to see it on the big screen. And in super, super exciting news, our man Charles Hayne is not in this week because he's doing something a slightly more important. Don't be too graphic, Liz. <laughs> <laughs> Charles Hayne, as we've talked uh, before on the show, is becoming a dad, and it's happening as we speak. It's super exciting. It's literally one room over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're super excited for you, Charles, uh, and to welcome your little one when we get to meet him or her. 
And uh, so we're going to hand over the gear news this week to Mr. John Fusca. So I'll just do my best here to give you a quick rundown of some of the gear that we uh, featured on No Film School this week. We got a couple of new lens field tests from our writer, Darren James. The first is Tamron's new wide-angle zoom, which has replaced its predecessor with what he says is improved housing and optical design. The Tamron G2 lenses offer several advantages over its first-generation optics, including better corner-to-corner resolution, improved lens coating, three types of vibration compensation modes, faster autofocus, and overall, a much better feel in the field. This SP 15 to 30 millimeter lens is the latest in Tamron's full-frame SP lenses. It's available in both Nikon F and Canon EF mount. The wide-angle zoom is an inexpensive alternative for full-frame and APS-C DSLR shooters. The compact lens features a constant maximum aperture of f2.8 while still managing to keep its weight down at 39.2 ounces for Canon and 38.8 ounces for Nikon. The physical length is 5.7 inches for Canon and slightly smaller for Nikon at 5.6 inches. And he made a special point in saying that zooming the physical length of the lens does not change, which makes it friendly to use with a matte box on rails. You can read everything that he has to say about that new lens on the site. We had Darren James test out one of the Canon CNE prime lenses, the 20mm, and his conclusion was that what Canon has going for them is color consistency and it's bokeh. When moving from one focal length to the next, the images were identical, producing a fairly neutral color, but adding natural warmth to skin tones. It's going to simplify your color grading process, which is something that you want in a lens today. The CNE 20mm produced impressive results. It gives you familiar Canon lens characteristics and provides a nice wide-angle view while keeping you close to the subject. The addition will be great for documentary work and narrative as well. The CNE 20mm alone has a price tag of $4,220, and the other six focal lengths in kit form come in around $22,000. And you can read all about that on the site as well. And now for Ask No Film School, Romeo Trocino asks, I would like to use a song from an independent music artist for my short film that will be in a non-profit film festival. I'm not getting a response from the artist. Will I be able to use it without their permission? The short answer is no. (laughs) And honestly, you wouldn't want to, because even if you got away with it, if your film does well, which it will, and it moves on from that nonprofit festival, you will eventually get to a stage where permission is definitely required, and then you'll be so married to the song that it will feel impossible to replace. Now, here's a bit of a longer answer. Definitely keep trying to reach the artist. If they're not responding, maybe try their record label or distributor and see if they have a manager or booking agent that you can reach out to. Also keep in mind that you actually need two licenses in order to use a piece of music in your film, a synchronization license and a master use license. The sync license gives you the right to synchronize a song or piece of music with your visuals, and you get it from the copyright owner of the music, which is usually the publisher. The master use license gives you the right to reproduce a specific recording of a song in your film, which you get from the record label or whoever owns that specific recording you'd like to use. Note that it could be that neither of these actually comes from the band itself, so it it might be that you don't have to reach the band. Now, of course, there are alternatives to using a specific band song. Do you know any musicians who could recreate something similar to what you're looking for? And there are a whole lot of stock music sites out there where you just pay a small fee for access to lots of pre-licensed music. And before you go moaning and groaning about that idea, they've really gotten increasingly sophisticated as far as how you control a search for exactly the type of music you want. So in short, you have a lot of options. 
Good luck, Romeo. And I know we've talked a lot about movies already, but here are the movies opening this week that you can check out. These are all theatrical. There's not much going on in the streaming platforms these days because Netflix is waiting until award season to drop all of their movies, and uh, there's quite a few coming out. Um, maybe we'll talk. Maybe we'll do a little news item on that. In, in the coming weeks. That'll be interesting. Interesting stuff, yeah. For Roma, do we put that in the now in theaters or do we put that on the now streaming section? I think now streaming. Oh, okay. It's controversial. Streeters. Streeters. So anyways, these movies coming out to theaters. The Nun on September 7th. Now, the only reason we mentioned this one on here is because we did a whole story about how the trailer for this film was so scary it basically got banned from YouTube on the show a couple weeks ago. Um, as Variety reported, quote, because of the fear, <laughs> because of the fear, the six-second clip has incited in unsuspecting viewers. I wish it was just because of the fear. <laughs> YouTube has notably taken down the video from the site. The preview, which was streaming before other videos would load on YouTube, displays a typical volume sign increasing in volume and then lowering all the way down when suddenly the titular nun in full horror mode appears and makes a blood-curdling scream. It's funny because that's like the same trailer for the Steve Bannon movie. <laughs> yeah, it's exact same. So we pretty much all agreed that it was a cheap scare tactic, and by we pretty much all, I guess it was just, <laughs> just me and Eric. We took a vote. We both said yes. But, uh... <laughs> I actually got a funny email from um, our Black Magic, uh, our Black Magic guy, uh, Black Magic Camera Company, who like reached out to me because he was like, "Yeah, that trailer was scary." And I was like, oh, I love that he listens to the show. Um, anyways, that's the first time he's told he's told like, me that he listens to the show, but obviously it's a hot piece of news. Uh, this film is part of the popular horror universe of The Conjuring, and uh, it follows a priest with a haunted past and a novice on the threshold of her final vows that are sent by the Vatican to investigate the death of a young nun in Romania and confront a malevolent force in the form of a demonic nun. Honestly, it sounds kind of cool to me. <laughs> yeah, I may, I may go tomorrow night. Actually. Yeah, I'm kind of tempted. It's like sounds very exorc- exorcist-y yeah. uh, and like... Uh, archaeologically driven, which oh, like. that's critics are saying this film is archaeologically <laughs> driven. It's it's directed by a uh, relative newcomer, Corin Hardy, and it features Damien Bashir and Taisa Farmiga in its cast. Also opening on September seventh is Kusama Infinity. Here is one our resident girl on the scene, Oakley Anderson Moore's favorite films from Sundance this year. Kusama Infinity follows the life of now explosive artists. Close yeah, she just had close a. Close okay. She just had a uh, like a, a gallery or some sort of exhibit at Fort Tilden, which is in oh. the Rockaways. She had yeah. a massive exhibit here in New York at a gallery earlier this year that you so. couldn't she even get close. into. You were like, people would go and line up early in the morning and be lined up all the way around the corner. It's all the infinity mirrors, right? That's why. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, if you ever look at people's Instagram, <laughs> that is explosive. It's That's what it is. Friendly artwork. So she's not exploding physically, but her career is. Well, the documentary follows her from her early childhood upbringing and experiences in World War II that directly shaped her iconic polka-dotted visions to her struggles breaking into the sexist art world of New York City in the 1960s. Oakley sat down with the first-time filmmaker Heather Lenz, who shot the film in Japan, and took lessons on Japanese culture and business to prepare. However, when she did first interview Kusama, she was extremely prepared to overcome any language or cultural boundaries. 
Quote, I had a translator, and for the first interview, we came up with what we thought was super clever, explained Lenz. We had one camera for when we were recording Kusama, and then we had this really long cable going to someone in another room with another camera. That person was watching the feed and listening. I had something in my ear, so I was getting real-time translation of what she was saying. Wow. Yeah, that's got to be complicated. Your brain has to be kind of working on two different levels at the same time. But that's incredible. I've done a lot of uh, second language interviews, um, yeah. and it's it's really tricky. So that I would love to have a system like that set up. Definitely. That's, that is pretty cool. And, and you can uh, read the full article at No Film School, of course, on this post entitled How International Productions at Sundance Embrace Post-Globalization Filmmaking. Oof, that's a mouthful. Amy Scott's documentary, Hal, that we mentioned earlier in the show, is also coming to theaters this Friday. You know that Facebook thing that's been going around where you're supposed to put posters of 10 films that made an early impression on you and have stuck with you through the years? Yeah, I'm still working on the ice bucket challenge, but I have seen this. <laughs> I don't have Facebook anymore. Oh, yeah, that's right. What kind of millennial are you? Anyway, the first poster I chose for this was for Harold and Maude from 1971, and the director of that movie was the titular Hal of this documentary, Hal Ashby. By the way, John, I like that we've worked titular into two of our movie capsules this week. All that is to say that I'm a fan of Hal Ashby's, and I was excited to see Scott's film back at Sundance. It's about Ashby, whose other well-known films include The Last Detail and Shampoo, but it's also about how Hollywood works and why Hal's career may not have taken off like some of his peers from the new wave of American filmmakers in the 70s, some of whom are interviewed in the film and count him as an influence. Even more so, it's about what it means to stick to your vision and principles at all costs, a theme which, by strange coincidence, has been dominating the news here this week. I interviewed the director, Amy Scott, back at Sundance, and one thing that was interesting was talking to her about her own parallels with Hal Ashby. For example, they both started as editors. And I didn't know until I saw this film that Hal edited Norman Jewison's Academy Award-winning film In the Heat of the Night before he became a director. So Amy Scott talked about how much it helped to have editing experience if you're going to be directing a film that's largely made of archival material like this one, which totally makes sense. At any rate, if you're a fan of Ashby or curious about the social and political climate around filmmaking in the 70s America, definitely check it out. Yeah, and if you're in New York at the IFC Center, they also have a retrospective of Hal Ashby's films going on. Oh, how cool. Yeah, so if you get a ticket to the documentary, whatever Ashby film is playing after that, you can do, it's like a two-for-one double feature that you can pair with it. So, oh, what a great idea. Yeah, I'm interested in checking it out. I've never seen Harold and Maude. Really? Yeah. I think you'd like it. It's weird. It's sad. It's dark. It's dark. Yeah. Hmm. Coming like, home is a good. You look like weird and dark. Yeah, I do. Yeah. The Little Stranger was one that kind of slipped under the radar last week, so we thought we'd mention it this week. It's Lenny Abramson's follow-up to Room, uh, and he he directed Frank too. I mean, this guy's a proven indie director, uh, but this is his venture into the horror genre. Donald Gleason plays a doctor who is called to visit a crumbling manor when strange things begin to occur. Our own Max Winter sat down with the DP of the film, Ol' Brat Berkeland. That's a crazy name. Wait, I is his name Ol, really Ol, Ol Brat? Ol' Brat. I mean, maybe wow. maybe it's o, Olay Brat, but it sounds like... <laughs> Makes it even better day. Wow. They talked about how he created the film's eerie mood. He explained one of their tactics as such. Quote, we'd try and play with the genre in a sense that the camera was always slightly lower than you'd expect or slightly higher than you'd expect always trying not to be too, you know, conventional in our approach. So we were always trying to play with the idea, you know? What normally would you do here? Oh, okay, let's just move the camera a little bit over here. Let's make sure we're not always matching the eye line directly. We were always 
playing with the idea of what an audience might expect versus what they were getting. And you can read that whole interview on the site, How to Block a Ghost Story, DP Old Brat Berkland on the Unsettling the Little Stranger. Old Brat Berkland. I love him. I love him. The titular little stranger is someone to watch out for, let me tell you. <laughs> so we've got some grant deadlines for you. On September 11th, the auspicious date is the deadline for the Thessaloniki Agora Works in Progress. If you are in the process of shooting or in post-production on a film from Central Europe, Mediterranean, and Southeastern Europe, register for this showcase for industry exposure and awards up to 70,000 euros held in November. The Agora Works in Progress are sessions only for the industry professionals invited in Thessaloniki and are presented to invited sales agents, distributors, producers, and festival programmers. Where is Thessaloniki? Greece. And it's beautiful. I've been there. This would be a great excuse to just go there and potentially win up to 70,000 euros. Which is the only reason I go on vacations. (laughs) (laughs) The other deadline we have for you this week is the BAFTA Rowcliffe Film Call. It has a deadline on September 26th. If you are a UK-based writer with a script, you could be one of three projects selected for the BAFTA Showcase. Not only do the finalists receive a selection of fantastic prizes, including an industry showcased at BAFTA, but unlike other initiatives with thousands of entries, their more personal approach gets the finalist and forum list entries directly in front of execs, agents, and producers at their selection panels and juries. And to even be selected as a finalist, your entry has to have been read and recommended at least four times. So you're going to get a lot of eyes on your work regardless of what happens, and that's even before they announce the winners. Now for some festival deadlines, the early bird deadline of Friday, September 7th, is the Portland International Film Festival, which is PIF, I guess. Uh, the Portland Film Festival will take place in Portland, Oregon from March the 7th, 2019 to March the 21st. Drawing an audience of 38,000 people, the Portland International Film Festival is the biggest film event in Oregon, premiering more than 140 international shorts and feature films to Portland audiences annually. Audiences can experience a variety of parties, visiting artists, and plenty of festival adventures taking in this feast of cinematic fare. Mm, yummy. Now, <laughs> of, of now, PIF is a non-competitive festival, which is so Portland. Uh, now, the, though there are... <laughs> audience awards, and focuses primarily on work from outside of the United States, but American features, documentaries, and shorts are also included. The Boston International Film Festival has a deadline on September 7th. It takes place in what Liz once called the whitest city in America, Boston, Massachusetts, from <laughs> April 11th, 2019 to April 16th, 2019. It's weird that they use that as their tagline. <laughs> Is this I'm the sure whitest international actual, film festival? I'm sure there are actually whiter cities, but it's a pretty white city for the Northeast. I'll give you that. This is the early bird deadline. The Boston International Film Festival was created to celebrate the art of filmmaking and to honor the white filmmakers who make it all possible. <laughs> Sorry, just the filmmakers who make it all possible of any diverse background. This is a festival dedicated to rewarding artists for their individual talents and for their creative expression through the medium of film. The festival strives to bring together in Boston local, national, and international filmmakers by promoting the world's most artistic and creative independent and experimental films. I should also add, just, you know, to be on the positive side, I mean, white people are great. We're all white people. But, But Boston... Um, is also a really lovely city with a very appreciative film audience and really great independent theaters. So it's a terrific place to show your films. Didn't you go to school in Boston? I did. That says a lot. I'm experienced. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> and with a final deadline, final guys, of Friday, September the 14th is the Sundance Film Festival. It takes place in Park City, Utah from January 24th through February the 3rd, 2019 in Park City, Utah. And, you know, do we really have to tell you what Sundance is? Uh, I mean, if you want us to, we can. Uh, well, that's where Liz works now. So if you want your movie accepted, all you have to do is email Liz. <laughs> um, and Liz, what is your personal email? Right. It's um, jizzcam okay. at gmail.com. Okay. So she's very informal. But How uh, did you get hired at Sundance with an email handle like that? That's what I want to know. Because you should have read her cover letter. I mean, <laughs> the resume speaks for itself. I sent sometimes. a video. <laughs> oh God! Oh. So that's the final deadline on September fourteenth. It's Sundance. I'm sure you're well aware. Mark it on your calendar, and uh, Liz is happy to uh, accept you on on site, <laughs> or not even site. She doesn't need to see it. Just send it in. All right, Eric. What's the weekly words of wisdom? This well, week? if if it weren't those, I have something for you. Uh, once again, Oakley Anderson Moore uh, spoke with the filmmaking team of Helena Catet and Bruno Forzani last week for the release of their latest genre pastiche slash homage, Let the Corpses Tan. They had made a horror film called Amer a few years ago. That was pretty cool. The nonlinear experimental genre exercise is currently playing in theaters in major cities and, as Oakley describes, is adapted from a 1971 novel by Jean-Patrick Manchette. The film follows the cadre of criminals who hole up in a crumbling Mediterranean village with a has-been writer and its exquisitely destructive muse, Luce. In this cascade of genre fetishism, no shot is wasted. Now, while I've yet to see the film, it looks like a visual whirlwind that people will either love or hate. You know, the name Tarantino has been tossed around a lot while describing these filmmakers. But as Farzani noted, it's important to keep your own vision at all times. Others have failed attempting to turn this novel into a film, but these two filmmakers followed steadfast on their vision. Quote, It's true that with Let the Corpses Tan, we went in an area we didn't know, and we came out having learned so much. It's great because it opened my mind. After that, it's just work, work, work. Never surrender. Keep your ideas in what you think. Because in fact, Let the Corpses Tan has been adapted before us several times in scripts, but never has it become a film. Each time, it was a completely different story. If you have a vision about something, try to keep it and not be influenced by external people or producers or financiers or whoever it may be. The whole reason should be to create a special moment for the audience, not just a standard product. Now, their response to me feels both like a confirmation of their strong will and also like a retaliation against some of their critics. Sometimes if you listen to those outside voices saying no, you'll believe them and you won't be able to make the film you wanted to make. Now, of course, there are some outside voices that are going to allow you to make that film, including funds that they will provide. But if it feels wrong and kind of negative and against your vision, they will have won and you're left without the film you want to make, like so many filmmakers before you. So I think there's a balance between obviously listening and bringing in other voices, but also staying true to your vision and, you know, because others have failed in the past. So they made it happen and uh, the film is out now. I'm really surprised and pleased that a film like this got some theatrical distribution. It sounds really out there and really yeah, interesting. It's pretty it's pretty small uh, in terms of theatrical release, but it did get covered in the New York Times and it is playing now. So for shout outs this week, I'm just going to quickly say, you know, we've talked all about this fall festival season. It's getting super exciting. And I'm sure that some of you who are listening are debuting your films this fall. So we'd love to hear from you. If you are, you know, tweet at us, boo. And uh, let us know. We can give you a, a proper shout out on the show. But in the meantime, best of luck this fall festival season. We're rooting for all you guys. Yeah. And gals. 
Next week on the show, as you heard, John will be up in Canada at TIFF, so it'll just be Eric and I. But fortunately for you, you get to hear John on Monday. Yeah, the uh, last episode of uh, my series, The First Short, will be on Monday. Uh, This week, I'm going to have my editor and basically all-around post-production supervisor. He was my colorist, my editor. Um, He taught me how to edit a little bit. Um, We're going to talk about the nine months of post-production that we went through on the short, as if uh, the first nine months weren't harrowing enough. Um, And yeah, so I'm going to give you some tips into... uh, keeping a healthier relationship with your editor because um, he'll be on the show with me on Monday, but we definitely got into some fights a few times because uh, post-production can be really tough. In a lot of ways, it can be the toughest part of the entire uh, production. I feel like this is going to be like some of the group podcasts we've interviews we've done where it's half interview and half like a therapy session. Maybe, yeah. He said he's going to say some nice things about me, which I was like, you have nice things to say You didn't say, say he was a liar. <laughs> yeah, I know. I like that he comes in saying, don't worry, I'll say some nice things <laughs> about you, as if it's mostly going to be negative, and then he's going to switch it on and say a couple of positive kind of, good, I want to hear about these uh, battles. These fights. Feel, these creative endeavors. Yeah. Well, we uh, one of them actually took place on the streets of Bedside, <laughs> where we just <laughs> Because that a literal battle. Each other. Oh. Yeah. Uh, there was some, there were some tense moments, but, <laughs> but you know, we're the better for it. You so. didn't save the timeline or something like that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> oh God. No, he was great at know. that. No, he's, he's amazing. Um, his name is Tom Lay and he will be on the show on Monday. So, uh, <laughs> we'll see you guys then. Look forward to hearing it. Meanwhile, you can read about everything we talked about on this week's show in the podcast post. We'll link to all those fantastic No Film School articles and opportunities and deadlines. Um, and if you haven't subscribed to the show yet, please do so on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. It also really means a lot to us and helps other listeners discover the show when you rate us on iTunes. Of course, when you rate us well on iTunes. And we'd love to see that. Um, and, of course, stay in touch. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. I'm at Eric Lures. I'm at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Jim, 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 Fear the Nun. Ooh. (laughs) Thanks, everybody. See you next week.